Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. If you are visiting with us, I just want to offer and extend another welcome. I just appreciate, we appreciate you giving us a morning. You might be here with a family member for baby dedication. You might be looking for a church home. Whatever the case, we uh, treasure this time with you, and we're glad you're here. We are in Job chapter 1 this morning, so you can can go ahead and turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're invited to not only take the Bible in the seat bottom in front of you, but uh, for the morning, but you can have it if you don't have a Bible. Uh, we're in page one, or page, it should be page 417 of that particular Bible. So if you're looking for Job, that'll help you with a page number. Let me pray about how we spend these next few minutes. Lord, I am excited about these next three weeks. I'm so thankful for the level of wisdom that you've given us, the, the access that you've given us in this wonderful awesome book of Job. Lord, I pray that we will um, be good stewards with this time. Lord, I pray that we will be attentive. I pray that we will engage. And Lord, I pray more than any of that, that any of those things, that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our hearts to your ways, to um, even Satan's schemes this morning, that we can get some insight and wisdom into how he works uh, so that we can defend ourselves. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. Just praying for uh, this morning, lifting up Ridgecrest Baptist Church and Matt Beasley and his family. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, the man that Matt is, uh, having spent some time getting to know him, just uh, appreciating the kind of guy that he is, uh, the worshiper, first of all, a man that enjoys you and loves you, loves his family and is leading his family well. Lord, I'm thankful that he is leading this church as well, along with his other elders and leadership and deacons. Lord, I'm Uh, We this morning want to entrust Ridgecrest Baptist Church to you and ask you to bless them. I pray that you would uh, sustain them in this season away from their building while it's having some work done. And Lord, uh, just grow them in spite of their being displaced. Um, Entrusting them to you and entrusting us to you in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people, that word means in Hebrew, sons. Rare occasion will I encourage you to write a word in this would be one of those times. This is an important book. The book of Job is about what it means to be a son of God. That's an important thought that you can even put under the heading. I have it written under Job in my Bible. This is a book about what it means to be, to be a son of God. Job was one of the greatest of the sons of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I want to just uh, remind you of something that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, and it's something that will be a recurring theme over our journey in the book of Job, are the levels of wisdom that we have access to in the book of Job. Uh, Corey, go ahead and put up that first slide, if you would. I have my hand at any laser today, just any, any, any occasion to use this, awesome. Okay, so there are three different levels 
of wisdom in the book of Job that we have access to. Okay, the priestly level of wisdom is sort of the basic level of wisdom and involves understanding God's law. Okay, that's what the priest had to do. The priest had to know if you've got leprosy, this is how many times you've got to wash. If you've done this sin, transgression, this is the type of offering you need to offer. And here's what we do with that offering. We slice here, we dice there. Here's what, how we separate entrails from fat and skin. And, and then here's the por- portion that we eat. They, it was very black and white, very linear but involved a certain level of wisdom. That's the first level of wisdom. Very black and white, law-driven, and I would also add linear. So far in the book of Job, that's kind of where we've been. The passage that I just read where we, we were last week, sort of getting to know this guy, we see something that's really linear. We have sort of a prophet level of in, insight in so far that things are pretty black and white. This guy is doing what is prescribed by the book of Proverbs, and according to the book of Proverbs, the promises that are made in the book of Proverbs... He's uber-blessed. It's linear. It's black and white. It's nice and tidy so far. But this book gives you access to greater levels of wisdom than that. Hit that next slide. Okay, the next level of wisdom, the second of the third in the book of, that we have access to in the book of Job is kingly wisdom. Kingly wisdom includes priestly wisdom. The king has to know the law. The king has to understand where you slice and where you dice and what the prescriptions are according to the law. But the king also, on top of that, has unique and complicated circumstances that he's got to work through. For the priest, it's black and white, very linear. For the king, though, he might actually have two prostitutes coming to him claiming that the child belongs to each of them and has to figure out, what am I going to do in this case? The law doesn't give me an answer. So the king's got to have some more complicated, more advanced level of wisdom to do his job as a king. Okay, the third level of wisdom is right here. Hit that. Prophet level wisdom. This involves priestly wisdom, linear, black and white. The priest has to know the law and how it works. But the priest also has to be able to deal with the law and wield the law or wield wisdom in more complicated circumstances like the king. But what's crazy about the, the prophet level of wisdom is the prophet also has insight into the divine counsel and the divine intention. The prophet knows, for example, what God is doing in the nation of Israel over, over the course of the, the major and minor prophets. You see these prophets have insight into what God is doing. That's the most advanced level of wisdom here in kingly and then prophet level wisdom. Now, here's what's cool about where we're going this morning in Proverbs. This morning, we're going into the kingly and prophet wisdom. This morning, things are about to get real complicated. They've been real linear, okay? Job is the Proverbs man. We met him last week. He's not the Marlboro man, the face of Marlboro. He's the face of Proverbs, man. We see this guy, envision this guy, Job, standing in book, all his critters behind him. He's got that that van, that van with no windows because it's the only thing big enough to carry his whole family. He's got a big old family, 100 kids. 10 to be exact. Okay, this guy's super blessed because he's been moving well, linear, priestly level of wisdom so far. But this morning, it's about to get crazy. We're going to need some kingly wisdom. And what's crazy about the passage that we go into this week, next week, and then the week after that is we get prophet level wisdom. We get to like giraffes with like crazy long necks look into the throne room. We get to look into the divine council and find out what God is doing in the life of this guy named Job. Okay, so let's get to this guy in verses 6 through 12 is where we'll be this morning. You can leave those up just for a moment. 
Actually, you guys typically put the scripture up, don't you, as I'm going through it. Let's put the scripture up and then maybe put that thing back up just for a few minutes for anybody that might be jotting that down, and then you can just leave it off. Okay, thank you. Picking up in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said, okay, we're giraffes looking in the throne room. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so Job, the Proverbs man, a blameless and upright guy, one of the finest, if not the finest, son of the East, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. The Proverbs man, we've met this guy, we've gotten to know this guy. It's been very linear. He's moved very wisely up to verse 5. And even throughout these verses that we're looking at this morning, Job is just being Job. He's just loving the Lord. He's loving his family. He's tending to his critters, his family, his, his servants, his properties. He's just jobing right now. And while he's off doing his thing, just being Job, there was a day where there was a meeting in the high court of heaven. That's how this passage starts. There was a day in the high court of heaven, a divine council, and we as the reader are privy to what goes down. That's why Job is like the most amazing wisdom literature. We get to look into the divine council and see what's going on in the life of a guy that he doesn't know about. What's interesting is Job's friends aren't privy to it. Job's friends that you'll meet later in the book, if you're reading ahead, you've already met these guys, Eliphaz, Elihu, Zophar, Bildad, they're not privy to what we're privy to. We have the most advanced level of wisdom. We're able to look into the divine council like giraffes. They weren't able to look into it. All they had was what they could see and deal with in front of them. In some ways, they move with priestly level of wisdom. You've done something wrong, apparently, because there's bad stuff happening to you. It's black and white. It's linear, isn't it? They are not privy to what we are. Job's wife isn't privy. You only meet her a couple times, and somebody pointed out to me a couple weeks ago that we might all extend her a little bit of grace. And I said, you know, at first, I really don't, don't think so. The writer, the narrator doesn't at all. But I think as a human being, I can look and say, well, I can agree now, I think, a little bit. She lost everything, and she's not privy to what we're privy to, of what's going on in the high court of heaven. What's behind this whole thing? She's not privy. You know what's sad and kind of hard to deal with, too, is Job's not privy either. Job's not in the meeting. He doesn't get a subpoena saying, hey, you're going to appear in court. He doesn't get a summons. He's not even represented by counsel that's reporting to him. He's just jobing. He's just doing what he does. He's just living life. There's a concept that's introduced in the book of Job, the concept called simultaneity, where stuff's going on simultaneously in your lives right now that you're not even privy to, that have everything to do with your future. Like while Noah is building that ark, hammering those nails, constructing that big old thing, people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage 
and the clouds are forming simultaneity. They're just doing their thing. But meanwhile, judgment is brewing. Things are unfolding. In this case, it's the crazy thing about the book of Job. We have access to what's going on behind this thing simultaneously with Job just jobing. We have profit-level wisdom like giraffes. It's awesome. Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, I haven't seen it in years, so if I, if I describe it incorrectly and some of you are like mo- junkies for this movie, don't correct me. Just, just, just smile and agree. Uh, Will Ferrell, uh, one, one of, one, maybe the only movie that he was in where he's not a goofy and not, not a comedy, it's a, uh, a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen and one of my all-time favorites. In some ways, it, that sort of illustrates what's going on here. This guy's life is being written by someone, an author, who's writing, and he doesn't know that things are unfolding in his life as this person's writing this thing out. In some ways, that's kind of what's going on here. There's going to be some circumstances that unfold in Job's life that he's not privy to any more than Will Ferrell was privy to it. Now, the illustration unravels later because he became privy to it. Job's never privy to what went down in the high court of heaven. Simultaneity. Some things are going down. There is a court that takes place, and the sons of God are present. The sons of God are, we don't know exactly who they are. It's likely that the sons of God involve some angels. The angels are referred to as sons of God often in the scriptures. There's also likely, potentially, or we should say potentially, but possibly some saints there. Noah might be there, for example, since we're mentioning Noah. Noah predates, we believe, the time of Job. Abraham, I believe, predates Job. Abraham may have been there. He's dead. He may have been in the presence of the Lord in in on this divine council. Oftentimes, these guys were referred to as sons of God. Adam himself may have been there. In the genealogy of Christ, Adam is actually identified as a son of God. The, all the, the son of son of son, Adam is a son of God listed there. So he may have been there too. We don't know for sure, but likely a combination of angels, possibly saints. And we don't need to get bogged down on that because what we're really going to be baffled at is the notion of who else is in there. Man, I, I hope that maybe you've read ahead a little bit or maybe even this morning it's occurred to you where you're like, man, I can't wait to figure out why in the wide world of sports Satan is in the high court of heaven. Why is Satan in the divine council? It is a wonderful question. (laughs) I'll just kind of suffice with this. I'll provide this answer that may not suffice, may or may not suffice, but this is the only answer I've got. He's got to be there. For the story to unfold the way it unfolds, has he got to be in on this? Or there's no story. So he's there. Oh, we don't know why necessarily, but we know he's there for sure. And he's identified, his name actually means the, with a definite article, accuser. He's there doing what he does. And we're going to look at that this morning, what he actually does. And God addresses him and asks what he's been up to. We can just read it again in verse 7. He says, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. In some ways, he sort of answered with a version of, I've just been hunting. I've just been doing a little stalking like critters do. We have a couple of cats, outside cats, and we watched one of them climb nearly to the top of a huge tree going after a bird last night, stalking, just going after it. Christy couldn't let it go down, and she called him down. I was like, go for it, dude. I said, yeah, I've just been hunting. I've been stalking. I've been tracking. I've been doing a little trapping here and there, a little snaring. That's about it. Okay, that's all I've been doing. 
And then what happens next is something that should really baffle you. Beyond why Satan is there is what goes down in the next verse. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? As you've been off hunting and trapping and snaring and tracking, have you considered Job? Have you considered the Proverbs man? Man, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Man, as I'm just reading the story unfold so far, I'm just imagining that God is going to pick the, rat, the, the, the scoundrel, the guy that's the hardest to lead and love, the guy that's just like, why on earth did I make this joker? Have you considered my servant Jethro? I mean, I'm just coming up with a guy. Anybody in here named Jethro? I apologize. It's just, just a random name for a guy that you can just imagine be a scoundrel. But he says, man, have you considered the finest? The finest of the sons of the east? My son, Job, man, I don't want to do any gymnastics to explain away the fact that God offered up this man, this fine man. I'm not going to do gymnastics because I'm not very flexible. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff, and we don't need to do it. Let's just reckon and acknowledge the fact that God offered up to Satan this man named, this good man, this fine son named Job. Our God, yes, same God, who is a protector, yes, who is loving and cares for his children, offers up one of his sons. No gymnastics allowed, man. Let's just face it. We'll deal with it and try and make sense of it. Satan didn't bring up Job. God did. All right, so let's just pause to take in the details. Okay, just a little pause so we kind of regroup. A good man, the greatest of all the sons of the east. Okay, God said, recognize this guy as there's none like him on the face of the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. His fate is being decided in a divine council where he's not present and hasn't even been invited and he's not even represented and Satan is there and here's where we're going to go the next couple of weeks here's where we're going this week particularly Satan is doing what he does we're going to spend almost the rest of the morning just considering what's Satan doing and then next week and the week after that we're going to see here's what's going to be crazy if you hear what I'm saying God's doing what he does God's doing what he does Man, it's a tough notion, but here's the reality. This is a wisdom book, and wise folk tried to make sense of this. So let's deal with Satan. First of all, Satan is doing what he does. Let's read again verse 7. I'm going to try and just take a good look at what this, this rascal is up to. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Basically, he's been prowling. He's been hunting. And Satan, I'm telling you, this guy is not idle He doesn't have work hours, like certain time schedules. He's always on, and he's not content. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded. Peter is warning the early church, says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Man, Peter may have been thinking on this very passage in Job as he's reminding the early church to be on guard. He's doing what he does. He just prowls around. 
Man, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. See, here's the reality for the ancient church and for the contemporary church, because nothing's changed. There's an ancient and quite experienced being with an army of helpers that wants nothing more than to eat your lunch. That wants nothing more than to mess with you. It was true in Job's time. It's true now. We have our heads in the divine council. We get supreme wisdom, prophet-level wisdom that tells us as much. See, here's the reality. Fools don't even consider. Fools don't even consider this reality. Satan who? He can't influence me. I can never be duped by Satan. Well, there's proof in this story that at least four people can. I would add five. Four friends and one wife who are agents of Satan in this story. And you know what's crazy? Four of those guys are biblically astute experts in being used by Satan. Man, fools think they can't be fooled by Satan. I can't be influenced by Satan. Man, this guy has your number. This guy's been at it a whole lot longer than you've been at this faith thing. He's been at the foiling thing for ages and ages. Man, he's doing what he does, prowling and hunting. Something else he's doing here, and look at this passage in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord. The Lord pointed out Job. He acknowledges and even serves up Job. And then in verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Remember his name. His name means the accuser. Something else he's doing in this passage is he is accusing. And the the accusation is right there in verse 9. You have to sort of flip it to an inverted direction to make sense of it. Read it in verse 9. It says, does Job fear God for no reason? Now invert it. Here's the accusation. Job fears God for a reason. There's the accusation. Job fears God for a reason. You've protected him and you've blessed him. The accusation is that Job is a hypocrite. The accusation is that Job is just a mercenary, just in it for the loot, just in it for the currency, just fearing God for the blessings that come from fearing God. Now, I had a very honest and great question from a young person this week on that very matter. Man, it, it, war- it, it does me some serious good to know that our young people, our youth, are reading their Bibles and asking hard questions. And the question from this young person was along the lines of, hey, doesn't Proverbs kind of put that out there as something that is in store as blessings for honoring God and fearing God? Is, is there something wrong with wanting the blessings? It's like, man, that's a great question. And here's, an, here's a little sample, an example in Proverbs You can listen to this or you can turn there. I I like to write stuff on the side of my margin, and and this is a good place to write something. So you may turn there. Proverbs chapter 3. And we'll just see something really linear. Proverbs really linear. And let's see what it says here in chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with your first fruits, and of all your produce. Man, that's Job, the Proverbs man, smiling on the billboard. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
On the side, the first verse, I wrote the command. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And verse 10 on the side, I wrote the carrot. Here's the command and here's the carrot. Here's the carrot. That your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Man, it's a great and honest question. And that's not the only passage that reads that way in Proverbs. There are many other passages in our Bible that sort of produce this, that that sort of uh, give you a command and then a carrot. Is there something wrong with wanting the carrot? Absolutely not. Those are good things. They're put right in front of us. Here's some blessings in store for honoring the Lord. There's nothing wrong with wanting the goods or the loot. Okay, but here's the issue. He's accusing Job of honoring God only for the full barns and brimming vats. He's accusing Job of honoring God just for the goods. And so being that he would just be a hypocrite. That he doesn't fear the Lord and honor the Lord and love the Lord for the Lord's sake, but just for what the Lord does for him. Man, certainly you can see the problem with this, can't you? Maybe I can sort of help you sort of visualize it with some some things you might be able to see. This would be like a man loving his wife because she cooks good food. Period. Because she does his laundry. Because she makes his lunch. Now, I know I'm pigeonholing some ladies. A lot of ladies work and aren't at home doing these kind of things anyway. I'm not, don't, I don't need anybody getting upset with me over this. I'm just saying It'd be like a guy loving his wife for all that she does for him more than he loves her for who she is. Man, you know that's potential, right? But you know that's not good. You know that's not ideal, right? It'd be like a wife, a woman loving her husband because of the paycheck that he brings home and because he does a good job cutting the grass and tending to the cars but not loving the man. That's a hypocritical love. It's a mercenary love. It'd be like a kid, say a young person, um, loving their parents pretty much just for the spending money, the food, the clothing, the movies, the cell phone, the cell phone bill that's paid, the college tuition, the car, the gas, the car insurance, the haircuts, the cool clothes, the health care provision, which young people typically don't appreciate, just know that's serious provision. Dental, and let's just really even go crazy. How about this? Orthodontics. Gracious. Oof, orthodontics. It'd be like a young person loving their parents. Hey, I love all that stuff, but I really don't love you. Can you just give me the loot? Can you just give me the stuff? That's a hypocritical and a mercenary love. And that's what Job accuses him of. But... uh, that's, that's what Satan accuses God or Job of. But here's what's crazy. Some have suggested that this isn't Satan in the throne room because they don't have a place for Satan being in the throne room. Some have suggested that it's someone somehow in God's heavenly court that is just uh, sort of serving in sort of a spy role, not a, a, a sinister spy role, but just in a, a role that is serving the Lord and helping the Lord as if he would need a spy. 
He, doesn't, he knows everything. He's omniscient and omnipresent, so he doesn't need that. But some have suggested that this is just a guy that's sort of serving in a spiral. But what unfolds also in this passage suggests to me this is the, as it says in the definite article, the accuser with a capital A, with a capital S, Satan himself in the throne room, is that he also accuses God of something. He accuses Job of being a mercenary, of being a hypocrite, but he also accuses God of underwriting the whole thing. He accuses God of underwriting his hypocrisy. He says, after all, he fears you because you built a hedge around him and blessed all that he has. So ultimately, it's your fault, God. Man, I'm just going to say that somebody in his heavenly court is not going to get away with that. It sounds like Satan to me with the definite article, the capital A, accuser, the capital S, Satan, you've built a hedge around him and you've blessed him with all that he has. It's your fault, God. Satan doing what he does. He prowls, hunting, stalking, and accusing. And then just a little glimpse of what God does. We're going to spend more time what God is doing here. But God does something here. He gives Satan permission to test Job with limitations. Thankfully, there's some limitations here. But he gives him permission here to test Job. Job. Years ago, I was teaching through, I preached through the first three chapters of Revelation and then taught through the rest of it on Wednesday nights. And I was introduced to the notion of something in Revelation that's very common. It's a concept that's called divine passives, where God gives permission over the course of the judgments in the book of Revelation, the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets. He gives permission to sinister beings like critters with eyes everywhere and Legs everywhere and crazy horns and stuff like that. Things that will sting you and all kind of crazy things. You probably read Revelation like that. Those are sinister, terrible beings. But God gives them permission to do his bidding, but he gives them boundaries. That was the first place I ever met the concept of divine passives. But that's what's going on right here. God is giving him permission with limitation. You go thus far, but no farther. You can't touch his person yet. You can touch all that he has, but you can't touch his person. But don't miss that God allows the terrible circumstances that unfold in the rest of the chapter. No gymnastics. Just see it. All right. Some application. Three application points. We just we unpack that passage. Three application points for wise folk. Our folks that want to be wise. I hope everybody in here is like, man, I came hungry for some wisdom. Okay, so here's some three things. Here are three things that we can walk away with that have to do with a working wisdom that will help you help us over the course of the week deal with life. This is a wisdom book after all, so we ought to be getting us some wisdom. So here's the first thing we can apply. Wisdom sees Satan at work. My dad is, was a veterinarian when I was growing up. He, uh, he's retired now, but I grew up working for him at the animal clinic. And there was a guy that worked with him that I spent a lot of time with this guy, and he became a good friend. His name was Lawrence Ford. Lawrence was a character. Lawrence had a Cadillac, and on the side of his Cadillac, he had stickers, the kind of stickers that you use to register your boat, your fishing boat. Like a, in Louisiana, you call them a bateau boat, where you're out catching, shooting ducks and catching fish. He had those things, stickers on the side of his car, and his name was Lawrence, and he had sugar Lonnie on the side of his car. This guy was a character, man. He made me laugh. And I spent a lot of time with Sugar Lonnie. Now, I called him Lawrence, but I spent a lot of time with Lawrence at the, at the animal clinic. And my dad and I often visited Lawrence at his home, and we got to meet his dad named Horace. And Horace must have been 90-something when I was a kid. He seemed like he was 90. He was probably my age. 
<laughs> Come to think of it, it's pretty funny. But man, Horace would tell stories. He's just a storyteller. He'd just tell one story after another. And every story would end with the phrase, but boy, the devil is busy. The devil is busy. Every story had to do with some way, at least in his mind, or maybe it was just a transition point for him, like an um, a version of an um. The devil is busy. And man, my family has said that for years. Oh, I bet, I bet Scott's heard me say it a hundred times, a thousand times. Man, the devil was busy. Because man, he sure is. He's never idle. He's always at work, always prowling, always devouring, always accusing. Let me show you a little picture of this. In the book of Zechariah, it's not a common go-to passage, but what a delightful passage this is. In Zechariah chapter 3, you can just listen or you can turn there. I don't have a page number for you, so you're on your own. You could try the the uh, table of contents. Just listen to what's going on in this passage and enjoy where we fit into it. But see Satan for what he does here in this passage too. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is a vision that Zechariah is having. Okay? It's kind of a prophet level wisdom, uh, wisdom vision. Okay? He's like a giraffe. We're poking our head into the throne room. Let's see what goes down in here. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him because he's doing what he does. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Man, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, read it again over and over and over again. It's a wonderful story. But you see Satan doing what he does. And you see Joshua as a high priest, a representative of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And you see God turning to Satan and say, I rebuke you. Shut it. This is a brand plucked from the fire. Man, what a wonderful wisdom comes from realizing that Satan is always at work. Satan is doing what he's doing, accusing what he's doing in this passage. We don't see exactly what he's saying about Joshua, but we can expect from what else we see in there that he's accusing him. Look how filthy he is. Look at his iniquity, God. He doesn't deserve your love. He doesn't deserve what you could do for him. He's unworthy. He's worthless. Does anybody ever else feel with those, deal with those feelings yourself? Anybody else ever feel filthy and unworthy? Is that just me? Anybody else ever hear those accusations of Satan? Slimeball. Man, he doesn't deserve your love. You can fight those accusations with the marvel that you, not because of you with some sort of personal merit, but you because God set his love on you, the church, are a brand plucked from the fire. Shut it, Satan. Shut it. Mm, His schemes, his accusations are relentless, but you have something to fight him with. 
How about Zechariah 3, 1 through 3? That's not all you have. You could put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand up against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, in the section in Ephesians that's talking about walking wisely is the notion of putting on the whole armor. There's a church around here that did a series on this recently that's really amazing. <laughs> on the whole armor, it's crazy. You could put on the belt of truth. You could put on the breastplate of righteousness. You could put on gospel-shod feet, leaving you conditioned and ready to serve when called on. You could take up the shield of faith. You could bear the sword of the Spirit and then bathe all your efforts in prayer, praying at all times. Man, that's what wise folks do. Because they realize you can be fooled by Satan at any point, but you have some good equipment to protect you from that. Wise folks that move with prophet-level wisdom who understand simultaneity and understand that we have an adversary that's always at work realize you could be fooled at any time. So you're vigilant. Wisdom sees Satan at work. Secondly, wisdom sees God ordaining or allowing all things. This, I'm telling you right now, is a treasure. This is a treasure. Seeing that God ordains or allows all things, there's a problem with something called dualism. You may be party to it. You may be uh, holding fast to it, holding on to dualism and not realize that dualism is something that I grew up with. And I grew up in the church with this concept of good and bad and darkness and light, that God is on the good side and Satan's on the bad side. And sort of like the little thing where you got to... You know, a good thing on this shoulder, maybe I don't know which shoulder, a good little person on this shoulder that's whispering good things, and you got a bad person on this portion, and you see God over here, and you see Satan over here. That's dualism, equal and opposite forces. Man, that's a false teaching. That's not a biblical teaching. That's not a Christian teaching, the notion of dualism. I don't know in that case how you would process a God then that could be fooled or caught unaware by the bad guy. That's not much of a God. Think about that for a minute. How do you process a God who isn't able to protect his children because he's caught off guard by the bad guy? I don't even care for that God, much less want to worship that God. But 1 John 4, 4 says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not equal and opposite. Man, he's greater. John chapter 1, verse 5, this passage is introducing the person and work of Christ. And John chapter 1 says, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's not equal and opposite. You ever walked into a really pitch black dark room, and you think, well, all I've got is this weak handle. You don't think that way. You light that joker up, man. There's no darkness that's too dark for a little bitty old wee match. Man, it's not equal and opposite. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Man, without darkness, though, here's the reality that we see unfolding in Job. Without darkness, there is no light. You can't even make sense of light without some darkness. Without slavery, there is no freedom. Without struggles ordained and allowed, there is no need for a deliverer. Without sin, who needs a savior? They're not equal and opposite, but they have to both be there. And you have to reckon with the fact that God is sovereign over it all. He's either ordaining it or he's allowing it. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, said if there's a single renegade molecule in the universe, then God is not God. 
God ordains or allows all things. And you might have the most despicable thought in your head right now. You might have visions of people flying planes into buildings or something crazy. God allowed that? Yes, he did. Absolutely. My God allowed that. I'm completely comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with a God that was caught unaware, that couldn't have stopped it. That's not a God. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God works all things to, according to the kind intention of his will. I'm going to kind of read all things as a, all things. Romans 8.28. Man, is that a passage that's familiar to you? It ought to be. It's a dear one. It's a dear one. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things? You mean he's going to work that for good for those who are called according to his purpose? Yep, that's what God does. He's either ordaining or allowing all things, including what's unfolding in Job. And that's why this throne room, this divine council access that we have, will give you some wisdom in how to deal with your mess. God wasn't snoozing. He's working something in and through this mess. He works all things according to the kind intention of his will, including yours. And the last thought is brief. Wisdom wrestles with the question, why do I love thee? Does anybody else want to explore that question? Why do I love thee? Do I love you for the loot? Do I love you for what you do for me? Am I in it for the carrot? Or am I in it because it's you? Man, I hope this book will give us some wisdom and at least thinking to maybe ask for it. Lord, purify my love for you, whatever it takes. Purify my love for you, whatever it takes. Refine it, whatever it takes. So that I love you because of who you are and not because of what you do for me. Our supper this morning comes from John chapter 12. And don't shift around. Okay, I want, just, I want you to kind of stay real still. When I say supper, I know there's kind of a preparation thing that goes on. Okay, I got to put my Bible aside. You'll have, you'll have time for that. This is connected to the sermon, and it's just, just beautiful. I believe that was Satan in the throne room in this passage in Job. But I want you to consider this passage in John chapter 12 as we take the supper, as we celebrate each week what happened in the cross, what was achieved in and through the cross. Listen to this passage in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Jesus on... This is, this is moments, hours before his final few days. In fact, John chapter 12 is where he's washing the disciples' feet. He washed the disciples' feet as the, at the Passover meal, the night before he's arrested. He's about to go to the cross. And here's what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Okay, here's what's crazy. Here's what's scandalous about living this side of the cross and having a view of what was accomplished on the cross is that Satan no longer has the access that he had in the throne room 
in Job's time now. He's been evicted. That's the scandal of the age that we live in. That's what we have that Job didn't have. Satan has this access to the divine counsel. He doesn't now. He doesn't have the access that he had because the work of the cross meant that he was evicted and the accuser was evicted and guess who moved in? The mediator. As of the ascension, as he is seated in session at the Father's right hand, there's no one there that's accusing anymore. Now we have been, now that's been replaced with someone who is mediating and interceding for us. That's the scandal of what we celebrate each week. The scandal of this age. Now we still suffer. All bets are off. It doesn't mean there's no more suffering. The devil still prowls. He still stalks. He still does everything he can to foil and fool. But he does not have access to the divine counsel now that he had then because of the thing we celebrate every single week. Does that make you want to eat up? Now, how that plays out, I don't know. <laughs> I just know it's good. It makes me want to eat. It makes me want to eat something. I'm a moody eater. Apparently, because I want to eat the supper right now. It's fitting. It's time for that. Let's distribute the elements.